Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboard and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Jace Lington. Today I'm talking with the Gray Center's co-executive director, Adam White, about James Rosen's new book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. Adam recently reviewed the book for Commentary Magazine. Now, Adam, you reviewed this book favorably. What makes Rosen's biography of Scalia better than the others that you mentioned? aside from the different ideological lens. Well, sure, Jace. I, I want to say right off the bat, Gray Center has been doing vari- variations of this podcast for three or four years. Uh, it's very strange to be the guest on an episode, but it's, it's great as always to be here with you. This book was really astonishing. As you mentioned, Jace, the book is called Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. So right off the bat, the reader knows that this book ends with Justice Scalia's arrival on the Supreme Court. A 400-page biography of Scalia's pre-Supreme Court life and career is in and of itself a pretty extraordinary contribution. There have been a couple other biographies of Scalia, one that was, I think, pretty terrible by Bruce Allen Murphy, one that was, as I put in the review, conventionally critical um, by Joan Biskupic. There's a great book on Justice Scalia's jurisprudence by, uh, I think, Ralph Rossum. But to have a full biography of Scalia's pre-Supreme Court career in this depth and detail is amazing. Justice Scalia has already been written about so much. Uh, he's written, he himself has written so much. And now we have the series of books coming out, the collections of his writings, Scalia Speaks, uh, Scalia on Faith, The Essential Scalia. It's hard to imagine being surprised by anything. And let me just add one more thing, Jace. For a few years at Scalia Law, I would teach uh, a seminar or a reading group on Scalia's less famous writings. Every week, we would take maybe some of his judicial opinions, some D.C. Circuit opinions, a lot of his writings from before he was on the Supreme Court. The students and I would discuss those readings in, in dialogue with the people he was debating at any given moment in time. So, in addition to the fact that Scalia was just very well known, I kind of smugly thought, well, I really know Scalia well, maybe more than even your average court watcher. I was really stunned by the depth of research in this book, which we will get into, I'm sure, on the podcast. But even I was stunned by how much I learned, or at least how much extra detail I was. Um, the, the reader is given by by James Rosen in things that were already sort of vaguely alluded to or summarized before, but we'd never really seen it up close in this way. The book is a real, real contribution to the public's understanding of Scalia. That leads right into my next question, which was going to be, What's the biggest thing you learned about Scalia you didn't know going into the book? Yeah, and for the record, everybody, Jason, I have not pre-talked this podcast. Uh, We're just winging it, so uh, I haven't heard the questions yet. So the biggest surprise, it's going to sound really mundane, maybe to most readers. Actually, no, for readers of this podcast, listeners of this podcast, they might get a kick out of this one. Um, I, of course, knew that Justice Scalia had been at AEI for years Uh, following the end of the Ford administration. He was in residence at AEI for about six months. And then when he went to the University of Chicago and and was a visiting professor at Stanford, he remained a a really integral part of AEI's work on the Constitution and on regulatory reform. When the Reagan administration created its initial framework for OIRA, Executive Order, what was it, 12291, uh, Scalia was actually a little skeptical of the White House 
putting uh, too much weight on cost-benefit analysis. Now, this was already a matter of public record. He had written about it in a, a, a quarterly, his, his chairman's letter as chairman of the American Bar Association's administrative law section, uh, one of the many, many powerful positions uh, that he held uh, before he was on the court. You could tell I was joking there. But um, he, it was well known already that he had been a little skeptical of cost-benefit analysis. But Rosen goes back into the archives and finds news accounts of an event that Scalia did at AEI where he really raked the Reagan team over the coals, really, really challenged them in their emphasis on cost-benefit analysis. Again, the, the surprise here isn't so much like just the general mood of Scalia on the issue. We knew that, but but the record of that kind of event where you really see um, a, a concrete example of this, that was amazing to me. Maybe in the, the largest scale surprise for me in the book was the amount of material that James Rosen pulls out of the D.C. Circuit archives for Scalia's years there. He goes through the, the archives of, I think it was Judge Skelly Wright, uh, Judge uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg before she was on the Supreme Court. Um, I can't remember, maybe Bork, maybe Silberman. But Rosen goes through a ton of the late D.C. Circuit judges' archives and is able to piece together at a really granular level just Judge Scalia's work on the D.C. Circuit. So you see Judge Scalia going back and forth in internal memos in a debate with Robert Bork over the original meaning of the First Amendment in a way that it turned out becomes pretty consequential for Bork's and Scalia's respective uh, candidacies for the, the Supreme Court seat that Scalia would eventually win. You see Scalia refining his view of administrative law, a little nitpicky things like an arbitrary and capricious review and substantial evidence review. Rosen pulls some materials out of the Ruth Bader Ginsburg files that show how Scalia had been thinking through these things. Uh, and, and as with so much, you see the origins of Scalia's broader views on administrative law. I guess these things were hiding in plain sight all along. They were there in the uh, in the public records. They just hadn't been used. And I will say, Rosen, as a journalist, and a, you know, he's a pretty he's a pretty brash journalist. Um, he's not a he's not a law professor, for better or for worse. Um, he always p- points out when he's breaking news, and it gets that mo- it gets a little bit um, a little bit heavy handed at times. But by the end of the book, there's no way to ignore the fact that Rosen has really brought out an astonishing amount of new information in this book at a very granular level. That makes sense. And for someone who's not a law professor, not enmeshed in the world of administrative law, someone like him would notice things that maybe you would gloss over. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally, totally. That's a great point. And since you're also at AEI, can you speak to how that institution has developed over the years? Is it different, especially with the perspective that the think tank has on administrative law compared to when Scalia was editing Regulation Magazine? That's a great question. So in case listeners don't know, uh, in addition to being co-director of the Gray Center, I'm a senior fellow at at AEI, where that's where I do my own research and writing. And, you know, Jace, long before I ever joined AEI, before I ever had any inkling I was going to join AEI, um, I was reading a collection of writings by Irving Kristol. Um, this was one of the founding uh, intellectual fathers of, of neoconservative political thought in the mid to late 20th century. And Kristol, he wrote a uh, autobiographical essay at the front end of one, or they might have used it in two of his collections. And he spends a couple of paragraphs 
reflecting on his time at AEI after the Ford administration. He talks about being there with Silberman and Bork and Scalia, and they would bring brown bag lunches, and they would talk about everything under the sun. Um, Scalia alludes to this very briefly in his D.C. Circuit oral history, um, which gets sort of truncated. He never really finishes the story. So I've always been fascinated with that era of Scalia's career. He edited Regulation Magazine back at the beginning when that was AEI's in-house magazine. He wrote a lot of essays under his own name. He wrote some unsigned editorials, too. And he and Silberman and Bork, I think because they worked with non-lawyers, non-law professors, they helped to really um, energize the the then-new conservative approach to constitutional law and the role of the courts, and also uh, regulatory reform and the role of the executive branch in in regulatory reform. So I don't know, Jace, that there was ever sort of an in-house party line on these issues. Then There wasn't then, there certainly isn't now. Um, but it was definitely a reform-minded approach, maybe best, best captured by Scalia's essay in Regulation Magazine for the issue when Reagan was inaugurated. The uh, essay was called Regulatory Reform, The Game Has Changed. And Scalia is making an argument that with the rise of the Reagan coalition um, and its arrival in the White House, conservatives who want to reform regulation ought to move from being so kind of pro-Congress, anti-executive branch, and and look towards being more pro, uh, pro-executive branch uh, and and less sort of reflexively anti-executive branch. Now, in a piece I wrote not long after Scalia died, I wrote it, I think, for the Yale Journal on Regulation. I said that with Scalia, this was an area of law that was not controlled by, by kind of first principles. There weren't clear constitutional answers. A lot of the questions that Scalia was grappling with then, and then later as a judge, this comes out in his Duke Law Journal article on Chevron, He's trying to strike the right prudential balances with an eye to the Constitution's text, the text of statutes, the the, the institutional roles of the courts and agencies, the president and Congress, um, and just a, a general sense of the spirit of the Constitution. Because, again, this is a place where there just wasn't much constitutional text to dictate obvious answers on questions like Chevron deference. And so it was a very reform-minded an institution-minded approach. And I'd like to think that that still holds true um, with AEI today. When I said that I I read about Scalia's AEI days uh, a long, long time ago, 25 years ago, I guess, um, a few years ago when suddenly I had the opportunity to come to AEI with my colleague uh, at AEI, Yuval Levin, many, many times over the years, he and I had talked about that era of AEI. And frankly, he and I and our colleagues are undertaking our own work at AEI, like self-consciously in the same spirit as Scalia and Demuth, Chris Demuth, Bork, Silberman. They're, they're giants, and and we we aren't, uh, but we are. We're in a sense, I guess, standing on the shoulders of giants in that way. I'm glad you mentioned Scalia's essay when Reagan came into office, because another point you made about it was that his position on Chevron is kind of like with the ideological ferment on the right today, he was worried that people would take a tactic and make a philosophy out of it. Yeah. And so you hear that critique being thrown at some on the right these days. And I was going to ask the broader question about conservatives evaluating Scalia's legacy 
and specifically pointing to his positions on judicial deference and non-delegation as ways that maybe he wouldn't be in line with the current thinking on the libertarian and conservative legal movement. But your article really pointed out that maybe he would have been more simpatico with current thought. Maybe. And, you know, I tend to think that in part because he was already shifting, it seemed, a bit towards the end of his career. There are hints of this, some people think, in some of his last opinions on Chevron deference. Obviously, he he definitely changed on our deference. Um, it seemed, I I always thought, from a, watching from afar, after he started to question our deference, it looked like he started to pull on a thread, and it just kept pulling. Um, you started to see him recalibrate a bit on Chevron. Before he died and after he died, I started hearing about talks that he was giving in various places where he was saying, you know, things like, we got to fix this Chevron thing. That that might not have been the exact words. That's just how I I remember hearing these accounts. I was hearing about them before he died. Definitely heard about them after he died. He seemed to be open to a, I guess a recalibration might be the right word for it. And maybe he would have wound up similarly on non-delegation, although it's hard to say. He'd always been so, so skeptical of it. If anything, I think his view of the importance of non-delegation, and he always appreciated the principle, it just the practical application of it was always difficult. We were seeing more and more of it through his approach in Chevron, um, the, the burgeoning major questions doctrine, which was really starting to take on life even before he died in 2016. So I don't know where he would have ended up. Um, but I think one of the great values of this book, as I point out in the commentary review, one of the great values of the book is that even if Scalia's specific sort of conclusions are open to debate, and on administrative law, I think a lot of conservative thinkers are, are now really departing from his particular conclusions. Um, I'm, I'm much more sympathetic, I think, to Scalia's approach than some of my friends. Um, even if you don't agree with the conclusions, the book is good because it shows you how he reached those conclusions. And I don't just mean sort of as a matter of legal logic, but, um, you know, if the What's the line? The life of the law is not logic, but experience. I don't know if that's true um, completely, but the life of a lawyer and judge is certainly logic and experience. And this book, I think, shows us the roots of Scalia's own experience that made him particularly sympathetic to um, that approach in administrative law, both his experience as a scholar, as a practitioner, as a as an administrator, um, all of those things, but also, as I say at the end of the review, I think his 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 approach with judicial restraint, judicial self restraint, I think really reflected something deep about his character in particular. Yeah, that really came out of the review, and I'm glad you put it in terms of recalibration because another thing you said came out from the way he approached those questions really speaks to the broader principle, not the specific conclusion, like you said. So you characterized it as trying to strike a balance between the rule of law and the will of the people. And as you know, if you know that's the background that he's working from, then you can make sense of the specific conclusions he makes in whatever debate of the day. Yeah, I'd say the rule of law and the will of people, but also, crucially, um, the nature and character of our constitutional institutions, right? His view of his his argument for for originalism was, at least in the first instance, an argument about the judicial office, and particularly the judicial office in a Republican, small-r Republican constitution. 
Um, certainly his arguments about Chevron were made with an eye to the institutional character and responsibilities of three branches of government. Um, but also, the, as he says in his Duke Law Journal article, they really do reflect the times, they're, they're, they, they reflect their own times. And that Scalia said, you know, for the past 50 years, we've lived in an era where it's thought that Congress needs to delegate broad powers. Well, if that's the case, then this approach on Chevron is the right one. Um, so, so Scalia's view of Chevron in particular was explicitly rooted in in his sense of democracy, his sense of our constitutional institutions, and in his sense of of Congress's approach to government over the last, the preceding at the time, 50 years, so from about the New Deal or so. I've got some more specific questions next. Sure. The biggest detail that jumped out at me from your review and commentary was the comment uh, recorded by Robert Connor, where Scalia allegedly predicted in 1959 that he would end up on the Supreme Court. What do you make of that? <laughs> so Robert Connor was a was a, a young was a friend of from Scalia's youth. He goes on to be uh, a priest, right? I think um, they they, if I remember correctly, they might have lot fell out of touch for a while, reconnect later in their lives, and and rekindle their friendship. And Father Connor recalls. As he was thinking about his vocation, uh, maybe going into the priesthood, Scalia visits him at his home. And Scalia, if I remember correctly at this time, was still in law school, perhaps? And Connor asks him, well, what are you going to do? And and he says, well, I'm going to go to this big Midwestern law firm, um, Jones Day in Cleveland. um, And it's very well connected in Washington, and I will rise um, that's that's the line, and I, I guess that's the inspiration of of Rosen's title for the book, "The Rise to Greatness," and I suppose the title of my review, "Scalia's Rise." Scalia himself casts doubt on the story, um, sort of suggesting that he hadn't recalled it that way. Um, and even Rosen, if you look in the end notes, and, and in this book, the end notes are great, by the way. They're they're worth looking back to as you read it. Um, Rosen too doesn't come out and say that he thinks the story might be too good to be true, but he certainly concedes that this is the story is so open to doubt. I, I think this might be a, um, a kind of a, a wishful, a wishful, uh, memory. I, I don't doubt that father Connor believed it. It's just, it's almost too good to be believable. Um, but it's a great line. They might say it's too good to check. And I know Rosen did try to check, but this one is is just almost too good to be true. And another place in the review, you mentioned the two faces of federalism speech that Scalia gave to the Federalist Society. Yeah. And that struck me as another place that he might be out of sync with contemporary conservative legal reformers. Can you talk a bit about how he thought about federal regulation? I know you talked to about the influence of his faith on his jurisprudence and the way he approached yeah. public service. Yeah. But how did he think about which issues should be solved at a federal level versus state? The two faces of federalism talk, I think that might have been from the first um, Federalist Society student convention. It was published in an early issue of the Harvard JLPP. And I love this essay for the same reason that I love those those early 1980s, late 1970s writings on administration. 
Because Scalia, again, says there are some issues that are a matter of first principles. And of course, federalism in, in, you know, in the big picture is in our system of matter of first principles. But it sometimes becomes difficult to draw lines. And he warns his conservative friends that, and this is where the line, um, don't let a tactic um, harden into a, a philosophy. Uh, he says in that essay, he says, conservatives are instinctually anti-federal government. This is in 82, in part because they've been outgunned at the federal level for the preceding 50, 60 years. He says, actually, there are some places where uh, the federal government actually is the proper decision maker. And he uses some examples. He uses examples from uh, from the then uh, early regulation of cable TV by the FCC. He says this just wouldn't work if it were regulated by a patchwork of state-by-state or city-by-city systems. And Scalia clearly is drawing this. He's drawing on his experience in the Nixon administration in the Office of Telecommunications Policy. I should say, to my great embarrassment, in the print version, the the print magazine version of this review, I accidentally called it the Office of Technology Policy, which we managed to get fixed on the website, but I'll never live down. Um, But... That typo aside, Scalia understood firsthand from working in the federal government on the issue of telecommunications. That's an issue where it is best decided in large part or best regulated at the federal level. Now, of course, that ends up foreshadowing Scalia's perhaps surprising concurrence 25 years later in the Raich case, the the, the, the marijuana federalism case where the, the Supreme Court holds that that the Commerce Clause, applying a kind of Wickard v. Filburn approach, the Commerce Clause does empower the federal government to regulate um, homegrown marijuana, uh, or even to prohibit it, I suppose. Scalia doesn't join the majority opinion, but he concurs. Uh, he says, our, our Commerce Clause jurisprudence deserves to be cleaned up more, and it's not as necessarily as expansive as the majority thinks. But under the Necessary and Proper Clause, Congress surely could regulate homegrown marijuana as a as an adjunct to and, and in furtherance of the federal government's power over the interstate market in marijuana. So Scalia, Scalia was definitely more sympathetic to federal power than many of his contemporaries at the time. Um, surely many of his of his of of his fellow conservative legal thinkers today, although frankly, today is sort of an interesting moment, too, among conservative legal thinkers on questions of, of federalism. There's probably some corners of conservatism that are more pro federal government, pro national government um, than they might have been uh, in the past. And again, this is a place where my instincts are, are maybe more favorable towards Scalia than um, a lot of my smarter conservative friends. Um, but I, if, if I am first and foremost a, a Hamiltonian, there's a lot in Scalia's approach that rings true with me. In fact, that might actually have been, come to think of it, the, uh, the Rossum book on Scalia. It might have been uh, Scalia Hamiltonian on the court. I'm, now that I've said it out loud, I probably got it totally wrong, but that, that seems to be how I recall it. Well, that seems to be a good place to pivot to talking about Scalia and faith, yeah. um, given the vermin on the right. So speaking of his lesser known writings, you mentioned a speech he gave at Catholic University. I think it was right after he was nominated or appointed to the court. Yeah. And I just want to ask, can you frame it in a way that his son put it at Scalia's funeral? What does being a good servant of God's first have to do with being a good citizen and a good public servant? 
Yeah, of course, that's uh, the point about being uh, God's servant first is a reference to Thomas More or St. Thomas More, who had been one of Scalia, Scalia's, um, I don't even know how you put it, hero, role model, inspiration, um, dating back to when he and his wife, Maureen Scalia, who, by the way, is, is the other great hero and star of this book, without without rival um she's a she is the star of the book um along with scully himself they saw robert bolt's a man for all seasons in london i think while they were spending a year in europe uh scully was on a fellowship the year after they got married and scalia really clearly took to heart the the inspiration of saint thomas more uh his commitment first and foremost to his god and then second but also Sort of a, an echo of that commitment is his his commitment to to his country. This came up in interesting ways throughout Scalia's career. In the in maybe the nineteen nineties, early two thousands, he wrote an essay for First Things Magazine, the the Christian political magazine, where he, he reflected on his role as a Supreme Court justice in the administration of the death penalty. That book might have been called, or the essay might have been called something like "God's Justice and Ours." I, I'm probably getting it wrong, but um, Scalia clearly thought of his public service um the oath he swore uh in light to his 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 primary um commitments uh to his god now this was a focus of father paul scalia's homily at the funeral mass for scalia father scalia says in just beautifully how scalia's um commitment to faith his 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 commitment to his obligations as a as a christian they weren't incompatible with his public service. They actually ha- helped him be a better public servant. And it was a it was a homily at a funeral mass, so Father Paul Scalia didn't get pedantic about this. But what I took that to mean was something that, as you said, Scalia himself had explained in a speech right around the time of his appointment to the court. He had agreed to give this talk, I think, before his nomination, but he didn't actually give it until shortly after his nomination. I discovered this speech... Not long after he died, actually immediately after he died, I was writing a long piece for the Weekly Standard about him, and I stumbled upon it in the High and Online archives, and it was it's very stunning. Nobody had cited it in 25, well, it would have been more than that, I guess 30 years. Nobody had cited it. It had gotten cited for some other reasons having really nothing to do with the fact that it was Scalia's, you know, Scalia's talk on faith and public service. Um in fact, when I reached out to the publication, the, the, the Christian magazine that originally published the text, uh, the current editors were surprised. They didn't even know it existed themselves, and we got a copy of it online. Um, I feel bad. I've now gone on at length, and I cannot remember the title of the article. Can we maybe put it in the show notes? Um, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. But Scalia talks about public service and the, 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 the vocation and, and institutional obligation of a judge. Um, well, no, that's not right. It's, it, and it comes thing with the piece was called teaching, teaching about the law. And the point was that in America, um, it's very, very difficult uh, in, a, in a democracy to really hold your government in high esteem, right? After all, we elect these chuckleheads. We know that we know all their warts. Um, we know that they aren't this, we're not talking divine right of kings here. We're talking about, you know, the in any given election, you know, sometimes it's the it's the lesser of, of two evils that gets elected. These are not, you know, these are not great statesmen at the helm at all moments in time. So Scalia says, of course, it's easy to kind of shrug off um, our, our democratic lawmakers. 
um, the, the fruits of our democracy. But alluding to St. Paul's letter to the Romans, um, famous chapter 13, Scalia says, we as Christians, we have an obligation to respect lawful, just government. And of course, that, that gets complicated, what constitutes lawful, just government, and there are decades or centuries of debates about that and about civil disobedience and conscientious objection and so on. But the, but the main point is that we do have a, a, a moral obligation to respect um, just, lawful government. Uh, and for Scalia, I think that informed his view of the role of the judge in our democracy. The judges are not there to, first of all, to, to perfect human society. It's impossible, and that's another lesson that we get from St. Paul and, and from Scalia. That we're not, and actually, uh, was it the early National Review folks that used to like to say, "Don't I can never get this word right. You, you know it, don't you? Eminentize the eschaton. That's right. Don't try to bring heaven on earth. Scalia says, of course, that's true. And the danger is that judges sometimes, left to their own devices, might try to pursue their sense of perfection in spite of the, the democratic or, or small d democratic, small r republican institutions that actually govern judges. And so Scalia's argument in that essay is largely an argument for self-restraint. Um, both in light of one's obligations as a Christian and also one's obligations as a citizen. They're not in contradiction with one another. They're not really all even in tension with one another. Um, to be a good Christian, as Paul saw it, is, I guess, to, to be a good citizen um, while remembering that your first obligation isn't to government, but, but to God. And that dovetails nicely with your writing about his critique of legal education. Yeah. So he wrote about the need for law schools to focus on inculcating those virtues in future judges and future lawyers and not just yeah. looking at discrete aspects of the law. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and that's the that too is in the essay. I, people should click the link and read it because I'm sure I just totally butchered uh, his argument. And if anything, if nothing else, he put it much more succinctly and, and much better than I could. But Scalia, over and over again, when he would write about legal education— his main line of criticism for modern law professors was that they, they inculcated in students the sense that the judge has immense discretion, immense power, immense liberty to pursue justice um, rather than to, uh, to enforce the laws that the judges themselves uh, did not write, the Constitution and, and, and constitutional statutes. Um, his, his essay on, on common law lawyering and legal education, where he has this metaphor of, of, of lawyers learning to act like a running back, you know, dodging and, and, and evading inconvenient precedents until they finally cross the goal line and, and find good law and make good law. Uh, Scalia rejected all of that in the context of our federal system of, of, of written legislation. Uh, and he really urged uh, law professors... To, to, to turn away from that, uh, unsuccessfully, of course. Um, but he saw that really, I think, as an example of the willfulness of a of, of vocation that really should be about self-restraint. Um, he, he had a debate with Richard Epstein um, when, he, when he, Scalia, was still a judge, a judge on the D.C. Circuit. 
This is the Cato Institute. Richard, with whom I, I for years had a podcast at the Hoover Institution, he once told me the story, and if I remember correctly, it wasn't actually a debate. And by the way, I promise I'll get back to the point here. Um, they, he and Scalia had a debate that wasn't really a debate. Scalia gave a talk at lunch. Epstein was on the next panel. He proceeds to give a response to Scalia, um, even though it really wasn't the purpose of the panel. Scalia's initial remarks, which the Cato Institute ended up publishing alongside Epstein's remarks, um, Scalia urged his audience at Cato to not expect judges to be great um, discoverers and expositors of economic liberty in the Constitution. And Scalia said that the more that judges try to create new liberties, even ones that conservatives or libertarians might like, um, the more that you try to read those into the Constitution, the, the more you you stir up an entire cast of mind. I always love the way Scalia put it, this cast of mind in a judge, that their job is really to come up with the best, the, the, the best government, um, notwithstanding the actual written laws at, at hand. And, and I think Scalia's criticism of the legal profession, of law professors, of judges, all comes back to that, that sense of the cast of mind, which in the end is why I focused the end of my book review on Scalia's cast of mind and, and the character that undergirded it. Speaking of the end of your review, you wrote that the Office of Legal Counsel, which was a prominent feature of Rosen's biography, Scalia's time there, that that office is immensely powerful. So is the military, and so are the courts, for that matter. Yeah. But they're powerful because they're constrained. Yeah. In a Republican government especially, their power is in the limits that are imposed on them. Yeah. What do you mean by that? <laughs> um, yeah, it gets a little bit opaque in that part of the review. What I was trying to say there is that the Office of Legal Counsel has immense power so long as it stays in its lane. And this is a point that Scalia makes in his account of his time at OLC in the book, um, that they had a very important and powerful role within the executive branch. But to do that, they had to play it straight. They could not become advocates for policy. They needed to be, even within the, the, the political, you know, partisan executive branch, the Office of Legal Counsel does have to have a certain stance of, of, of neutrality in terms of legal interpretation. That's the only reason why their, their office has any practical power or influence. Um, Scalia, early in his career, had, um, or early in his life, in, in high school, he'd been in a junior ROTC program at, at uh, Xavier High School. And he had a lifelong fondness um, appreciation for, respect for military service. And so I included that in that same little peroration at the end of the book, that, that, that our military has, an, we, we give it immense power because it's limited. We don't allow, you know, military policing at home. We don't allow any of that. We make sure the military's role is, it's large, but it's still constrained. Um, in, in those and the other examples I used, these, these institutions have great power because they allow themselves to be limited. And once they exceed those limits, they find that their power will become limited as well. 
I just want to say, by the way, you mentioned OLC. One thing I want to make clear for this audience in particular is that one of the things I love about this biography is it gets into all the nerdy ad law parts of Scalia's career, uh, his time at the Office of Telecommunications Policy, which he then leaves to go chair ACUS, the Administrative Conference of the United States. And you really, there's an entire chapter on ACUS, which um, is frankly hilarious because ACUS, as much as I love the institution, I'm part of it myself. Um, it's usually not the stuff of Supreme Court biographies. You get a sense of Scalia's time at the American Bar Association Administrative Law section. Again, uh, an, an institution I quite like, I'm a part of, uh, not the stuff of a normal Supreme Court biography. You get a sense of how Scalia gets more and more interested in administrative law, which I think he touched on a little bit in his initial stint as a law professor uh, at UVA. But he was teaching a lot of a lot of other classes. Um, administrative law was not particularly his focus at UVA. It becomes his focus after his time in the Ford and Nixon administrations. Um, uh, and then, of course, his, his writings uh, at AEI and as a law professor. By the way, you know what you also get a sense of is his, his career and the doubts he had from time to time about his career. He throws himself into his initial law practice at Jones Day in Cleveland. He's there for six years, practicing, doing all kinds of cases. And then he finds himself doing document review in a warehouse a couple hours south of uh, Cincinnati uh, and starts to ask himself, or maybe south of Cleveland, he starts to ask himself, like, is this really what I want to do with my career? Um, when he's uh, when he's in government, or maybe after he's in government, he very, very much wants to be the Solicitor General. He gets passed over um, uh, for Solicitor General when they, when Reagan gives it to Rex Lee. Although another thing I didn't know until I read the book, he actually had a chance to become Solicitor General later in his time uh, on the D.C. Circuit, and he passes it up at that point. But Scalia, he gets frustrated with the University of Chicago. He goes out to Stanford doesn't really have a great time there. You really get a sense of the life that Scalia lived when he doesn't know how the story ends. He doesn't know that he's going to be a justice. Um, Father, uh, Father, Father Connor's uh, cryptic uh, memory uh, notwithstanding, you get a real sense of Scalia as a, as a person, as a husband and father, a lawyer, a law professor, um, a public servant, just doing the best he can uh, in a way that turns out great. Um, but, you know, it's, you sort of forget that when you know the end of the story before you know the beginning of it. Sure. Another detail that just backs that point up, uh, apparently he was offered or was being considered for the vice presidential slot when Bob Dole was running in 96. Yeah. Silverman's yeah. comment to him, encouraging him to think about what he wants to do after he would lose that election, just yeah. shows his dedication to being a judge and a teacher. That was a fun thing I enjoyed throwing in the review. It, that, that happens after the window that Rosen is writing about, so it's not in the book. But there's another anecdote in the book where I suppose it's when Scalia was considering leaving the D.C. Circuit. He was co briefly considered it to take the uh, Solicitor General job. And, and Judge Silberman, who after Scalia and Maureen Scalia is maybe the next biggest figure in the book, he's quoted extensively, um, and you really get a sense of their friendship. Um, I think Silberman is described as Scalia's conciliary and maybe vice versa too. But Silberman, when, when Scalia says, boy, maybe I should, I should become a uh, solicitor general. Sc Silberman says, well, what are you going to do after that? And that is the same 
Almost the same story that Silberman tells at Scalia's memorial service at the Mayflower Hotel. Not the funeral, but a little memorial service that was done for Scalia's friends and, and, and admirers. I was sitting in the balcony watching this. Was, Silberman tells the story of, of asking Scalia, what are you going to do after Dole loses? And of course, Scalia keeps his, his judicial seat. Another interesting thing in the book I didn't know was that Scalia actually thought about leaving academia at one point, and he reaches out to Silberman, who had gone from AEI to private practice. He had been the general counsel of, I think it was a, a large bank based in San Francisco. Um, Scalia thinks about, you know, maybe going back into private practice. After all, he famously had kids uh, that were going to be going through college, and uh, anyone as anyone with kids knows, that weighs on one's mind. Uh, and it's hard to imagine Scalia, you know, leaving academia, leaving a future in government service to become maybe general counsel of a big financial institution or something, but it could have happened. I, he would have been good at it, I'm sure, but history would have been very, very different. You mentioned kids, and one thing you did mention in your review was that Scalia himself was an only child, but then he had nine kids. Yeah. But one comment he made was that his parents were able to hold him to a high standard because he was the only. It seems like he was able to do that even with nine children. Do yeah, it's amazing when it, it is amazing when you see the the family that that he and 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 Maureen Scalia raised. Um, you know, I'm I'm friends and colleagues with the with the youngest son Chris who works at AEI. He's he's a he's a he's in my department. Um, uh, Gene Scalia, you know, know through um, all of his public service and private practice, and he was the most recent, uh, he gave the most recent Seaboyd and Gray lecture on the administrative state just a, a few weeks ago. Uh, he and I got to talk a little bit about, about the book in the, in the run-up to that. You can check out Gene Scalia's speech in the previous episode of this podcast. You know, uh, Jace, you, you, you clearly have gotten the hang of the podcast. You always know when to, uh, when to pitch our other wares, so I can respect that. It's it's it really is the, the story of how the Scalia's managed to raise this family, and again, Maureen being the other star of the book. The fact that she raises this family on the move from uh, Cleveland to D.C. You know, Cleveland to Charlottesville, University of Virginia, and then D.C. And then Chicago, San Francisco, back to Chicago, back to D.C. It's an it's an astonishing. Um, achievement. And it's really, it's the, the story is told lovingly in the, in the book. Was there anything else you think that people who are interested in administrative law or the separation of powers or the court in general should take away from Rosen's book? No, I think above all, ad law nerds will get a kick out of uh, an up-close look at Scalia's time in the Office of Legal Counsel, where he works alongside um, Bill Funk, who becomes one of the leading figures in administrative law in the last 30 years. Um, then his time, also his time at, at, at um, on telecom, the Office of Telecom Policy, his time at ACUS, the ABA, um, AEI. This book really fills in an enormous amount of detail in those years. And again, I think the value is, it's not so much in the conclusions that Scalia reaches. There is a lot of value in the reasoning that brings Scalia to those conclusions. Of course, a lot of that reasoning was available in Scalia's public writings also. I think the book helps us to better see and better understand the character and experience that brought Scalia to that line of reasoning, um, which in turn brought him to those conclusions. And in our own time, we face 
maybe the same questions, maybe similar questions, maybe different questions. The conclusions won't always be the same. The reasoning certainly is important as we reach our own conclusions on questions of administrative law. Uh, the character, above all, I think, is is what we can learn and take inspiration from. And that includes not just those of us who tend to agree with Scalia's reasoning and his conclusions, um, but also those who disagree with his conclusions and also those who disagree with his reasoning. Um, the character is of fundamental importance. Well, thanks for doing this, Adam. It's been fun to turn the tables and interview you for a change. And you do several book reviews, so we might do this again if you're up for it. You know, I, I this has been a lot of fun, Jace. I think I'm going to very happily go back to the other side of the microphone from now on. But um, uh, I will say getting to review books has been one of my favorite parts of my own um, very, very small contribution to the marketplace of ideas. Um, this book was a particular challenge, um, but it was also a particular joy. And we've been talking about Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986 by James Rosen. And is it true he's thinking about writing follow-up volumes, right? Just one or more, do you know? He says in the, at the end of the book, or maybe in the preface somewhere in there, he says there's going to be a second volume. Um, that will be, I just want to say, that'll be challenging to write in the short term, right? Because so much of Scalia's papers are not going to be released, his Supreme Court papers. They won't be released anytime soon. But given what Rosen managed to do with this book, uh, my guess is that whenever he completes the second book, uh, it will be um, it will be amazing too. Uh, and you know what? If he then has to wait for a while for a third volume on Scalia's public papers, well, I'll be happy. To, I'll be happy to read that too. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter. Center.